Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So recently, because I had just spent three weeks uh, researching the doctor's riot and then the Battle of Blair Mountain and then the Tulsa race riot, I asked on Facebook for suggestions of things that were happier to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of heavy content to be dealing with. It was. And among the suggestions that we got were downwinders, which are the people who live downwind of the fallout from nuclear weapons tests. Uh, Also, the Holocaust. Also, the P.S. General Slocum, which burned up and led to the deaths of more than a thousand people. Someone suggested a mass lynching. And someone else suggested the Irish War of Independence, in which more than 2,000 people died, including more than 700 civilians. So what this tells me is we either have lots of comedians among the listeners or a lot of really dark people (laughs) in terms of their outlook on life. Well, Um, they are all good ideas. They're just not very lighthearted. Not what I was asking for at all. We did get many that were a little happier. And Randy, on the other hand, asked us to talk about longitude. And he followed it with eight exclamation points. And so that story has clocks and science and an inventor and shipwrecks, but mostly preventing the shipwrecks. Uh, So that seemed like an awesome place to start in terms of doing something a little happier. Um, Of course, as things often go, it's not actually a completely happy story. Uh, but it is not so devastating as some of my recent research. <laughs> and certainly not as devastating as the Holocaust or a mass lynching. No. <laughs> so uh, just about everybody probably remembers uh, from elementary school that we measure coordinates and locations in longitude and latitude. These concepts have been around at least since Ptolemy's time. And around the year 150, he created an atlas that used a grid of lines, both to mark the maps and to index all of the places in them. People have also known how to find their north-south position even before we had the idea of latitude. The Phoenicians were doing it as early as 600 BCE. Most techniques for doing this involve measuring the height of heavenly bodies from the horizon at a specific time. And we'll link to some step-by-step instructions on how to do this in show notes for curious people rather than trying to explain it to you right now. That would be uh, some knowledge I would like to have. Well, Uh, I was originally typing it into these notes and it got extremely long. Yeah, anytime you get into directions on how to do things... It can spiral out of control in a hurry. Uh, additionally, a few seafaring peoples had some other tricks for figuring out roughly where they were on the globe, like observing the flights of birds and the patterns of waves. However, as a general rule, once people lost sight of land, they didn't really have a reliable way of figuring out how far east or west they'd gone. In other words, how to measure their longitude. This also applied Basically, anywhere you could lose sight of familiar landmarks. So even though we're talking about the ocean today, it also, that's the same rule applied with deserts uh, or mountain ranges that hadn't been explored. Um, uh, And it led to some problems besides the obvious inability to answer the question, where are we? Uh, Also unanswerable were, do we have enough to eat until we get to where we're going at the rate we're traveling? Uh, And for sea travelers, are we about to run into anything? 
That last one is especially important. It led to a lot of maritime disasters as ships ran aground on reefs and landmasses that people knew were there but didn't know were right there. We've talked about those in some of our previous episodes. And this uh, problem was particularly the case starting in the late 15th century as more and more ships tried to travel across oceans instead of just sticking along coastlines. You couldn't even rely on your best guess in a map as people, you know, started making maps of all this unexplored area because most of the maps were wildly inaccurate in terms of their longitudinal measurements anyway. They put the sea monsters in the wrong place. Yes. (laughs) Most of the methods that people tried uh, for figuring out how to measure longitude hinged on one question, which was, what time is it? So when you're traveling east... Local time moves ahead an hour for each 15 degrees of longitude that you travel. And the opposite is true for every 15 degrees that you move west. So if you have a reference time that you can use as a starting point, you can figure out what time it is where you are now, usually using the sun. And you can compare the difference between those two times to calculate your longitude. Dutch mathematician Gemma Frigius proposed using a clock to keep an accurate reference time all the way back in 1530. But no clock at that point was actually accurate enough to do the job, not even a clock that was sitting on land. And at sea, clocks were even less accurate because the motion of the ship interacted with the motion of the clock's pendulum and changes in temperature and humidity could also mess up the inner workings. Galileo got in on the action in 1613. And he was using the eclipses of Jupiter's moons as a reference point rather than just starting with an ordinary clock. His big big idea was to make eclipse charts that sailors could use at sea, but he was never really satisfied with the accuracy of the charts that he put together. And then in 1667, Cassini built on the work of both Galileo and Frisius to prove that the basic ideas, at least, were in fact sound. First, he measured the eclipses of Jupiter's moons from a position in Paris. And then he went to the island of Gori in the West Indies and measured them again, comparing what time they occurred in Gori to what time they were predicted to occur in Paris. And this measurement was pretty accurate, but even so, it was not really practical to use it on a ship. The telescopes at the time were too unwieldy. The ship really needed to be perfectly still to be able to observe and measure the eclipses accurately. Plus, timing the eclipses themselves still required an accurate clock. Like, just counting one 1,000 was not going to be accurate enough. Uh, And an accurate clock was still a problem. And running parallel to all of this scientific work, Nations recognized how important it was to their merchants and their navies to be able to measure longitude. So they started offering incentives for people to solve this problem. Philip II of Spain offered a prize to whoever could figure it out in 1567. And Philip III did the same in 1598. England and France both started observatories in the late 17th century, and their goal was to use astronomy to navigate. The use of astronomical charts, sextants, and the position of the moon to determine longitude became known as lunars, Um, although this was really difficult to do, and for a long time, until astronomers worked out some irregularities with the the moon's motion, uh, it was also not accurate. So eventually a maritime disaster really launched England into a bona fide effort to solve this problem. And we're going to talk about that after a quick word from our sponsor. Let's do. 
A lot of great minds had been pondering for a very long time about how to solve the longitude problem. And then in October of 1707, Admiral Sir Cloudesy Shovel's fleet was shipwrecked off of Sicily. Four ships were driven into the rocks thanks to high winds because their measurements were off from their actual positions. More than 2,000 men were lost, and the quartermaster of one of the ships was the only survivor. This wreck is usually cited as, one, being mostly due to the longitude problem, and two, as being the thing that really got Great Britain to focus on solving it. It was definitely an immense loss of both property and life. However, to some degree, it was also a little bit of a scapegoat. The incorrect measurements were actually farther off uh, in terms of latitude than they were in terms of measuring the longitude. An Admiral Shovel was a highly decorated and experienced admiral. Nobody wanted to blame him for the disaster. So longitude really got uh, the finger of blame. Regardless of how much longitude really was responsible for what happened, Parliament passed the Longitude Act in July of 1714, which read, in part, Whereas it is well known by all that are acquainted with the art of navigation that nothing is so much wanted and desired at sea as the discovery of the longitude for the safety and quickness of the voyages, the preservation of ships, and the lives of men. And whereas in the judgment of able mathematicians and navigators, several methods have already been discovered, true in theory, though very difficult in practice, some of which there is reason to expect, may be capable of improvement. Some already discovered may be proposed to the public, and others may be invented hereafter. So the Longitude Act goes on to say that discovery would be of particular advantage to Great Britain, but that it's also difficult and expensive. And so it names several people as commissioners of longitude, and it sets a cash prize for a practical and exact method. It was 10,000 pounds to within one degree, 15,000 pounds to two-thirds of a degree, and 20,000 pounds if it could be as exact as within half of a degree. And this method had to be proven out while on a six-week voyage to the East Indies. In terms of a clock, to be able to earn this grand prize, the clock could not gain or lose more than three seconds a day, since that would add up to two minutes or half a degree over a six-week trip. The commissioners of longitude later became the board of longitude. And this board drew from scholars and military minds. It included three professors of mathematics from Cambridge and Oxford, as well as the Astronomer Royal and the President of the Royal Society. Also included were the First Lord of the Admiralty, the First Commissioner of the Navy Board, and the Speaker of the House of Commons. Simultaneously, a lot of people really thought this was a fool's errand. And a lot of the suggestions that came in were completely cockamamie. Like, for example, someone suggested that they stationed ships at regular intervals all over the ocean where they could use lights and noise to provide guide points. Um, there was also a really wacky theory that had to do with complete pseudoscience and involved wounded dogs Yikes. and bandages. It, it was really strange um, and very silly. Uh, And a lot of people started using discovering the longitude as a synonym for doing something completely impossible. Many, many clockmakers and scientists had tried to make a clock that could keep accurate time at sea at this point. 
They had tried springs, they had tried vacuum-sealed chambers, and all manner of other techniques uh, and technology to try to protect the clock from motion and from the elements. And some of them had actually met with limited success. They kept good time in fair weather and relatively smooth seas, but once things got wet and rocky, they started to falter in their accuracy. The man who made this all work, finally, was John Harrison. We know almost nothing about Harrison's childhood or early life, or about his personal life outside of his clockmaking. He was born on March 24th, 1693, and he was the oldest of five children. In 1718, he married a woman named Elizabeth Beryl, and they had a son the next summer. She died when the boy was six, and he remarried a woman named Elizabeth Scott. They went on to have two more children, and their marriage lasted for 50 years. Harrison learned to be a woodworker from his father, and he had no formal training making clocks. Most of his other education was self-taught with the help of books he borrowed. And he was only 20 when he made his first pendulum clock, almost entirely from wood. Uh, It's really unclear how he figured out how to do this, considering that he had no background in clockwork. Uh, And his family wasn't well enough off to afford a clock, and there were no known clockmakers living anywhere near where he grew up. So it's a little hazy where he got this information and knowledge. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Benjamin Banneker, who we talked about him making a clock after he took apart a pocket watch that somebody had loaned to him. Uh, Harrison built two more wooden clocks over the next few years, and by 1720, he'd developed a reputation for being really good at making clocks. He had a knack for figuring out ingenious ways to improve on existing technology. He was afraid of rust, so he used brass instead of iron or steel. Uh, Instead of relying on lubricants, all the clocks at this point really had to be lubricated to make their inner workings go. He tried using woods that secreted their own oil to make the gears out of. He also designed his wooden gears so that they used the grain of the wood to make them stronger. And since pendulums expand and contract with changes in temperature, which makes the clocks inaccurate, he used combinations of metals that expanded and contracted at different rates and canceled each other out. Ingenious. I know. It's just, you love hearing about someone who just has so many insights into ways to solve problems. I'm pretty sure when we put this episode on our Facebook, somebody's going to put the aliens guy well, of on, course. On the thread. That's fine. I love the aliens guy. Me too. Uh, we're not sure when Harrison heard about the Longitude Prize, but later in life, he noted, noted that it was on his mind by 1727. He'd already tackled some of the obstacles that threw off clocks at sea, most particularly the lubricating oils that uh, got thicker and thinner depending on the weather. So his clocks that ran without it had a leg up already, and he just needed to figure out how to compensate for the motion of the ship. His first attempt became known as H1, and this was a big, heavy, blocky brass thing with four dials on the front that showed hours, minutes, seconds, and the day of the month. The whole thing worked without any lubrication, and in place of a pendulum, it used these bar-shaped balances that were connected by springs, and they canceled out the motion of the ship. This design drew high praise from Edmund Halley, who was on the Board of Longitude at the time, and it was approved to be sent on a test voyage to the East Indies. The Admiralty didn't send it on the voyage for more than a year, though, and they sent it to Lisbon instead of the East Indies. And on top of that, the captain died shortly after arrival. 
Even so, the H-1 proved to be more accurate than the ship's master's reckoning of their position. And soon after Harrison arrived back in England in June of 1737, the Board of Longitude convened for the first time since its inception to discuss his invention. So, success! Yay! But instead of jumping at the prize money, Harrison said he wanted to make his invention better. He asked for two more years to work on a smaller, improved version, and he also asked for 500 pounds to subsidize his work. The board also agreed that on the next test voyage, some other qualified person could accompany the clock because Harrison had been profoundly seasick during the Lisbon voyage. That's not fun. That's not a fun way to live. I hate (laughs) seasickness. I empathize. (laughs) I don't know anybody that loves it, but... Uh, when you're really prone to it, my understanding is that it's really quite non-delightful. Uh, Harrison presented the H2, so his second version, in January of 1741. It was heavier and bigger, and it used circular balances instead of the bar-shaped ones, which compensated for the ship's motion even better than the first version. But Harrison still thought he could improve on it, so he spent the next 19 years on the H3. When he finally finished, he was really satisfied that it would do the job. Like his old pendulums, the H3 used two metals to counteract one another's expansions and contractions. The clock also needed no lubrication, and both of the innovations that he used to achieve this still exist today. The metal in the form of bimetallic strips that are used in thermostats and the lubrication-free workings in the form of caged ball bearings that are still used in all kinds of machines. His resulting clock was also lighter and smaller, but it did have a really, really large number of moving parts. And yet, here's more. Uh, A few years earlier, a watchmaker named John Jeffries had made Harrison a pocket watch using Harrison's specifications and bimetallic components. Harrison hadn't thought at all about using anything so small and portable to keep time on a ship. But Jeffrey's pocket watch kept time extremely well. So Harrison decided to make another timepiece that looked more like a pocket watch. Yeah, at this point, little pocket watches were not, they were not very accurate and they were pretty fiddly and they had to be wound every day. They had a lot of downsides. And so he had never thought about trying to do it that way. Uh, But after getting this gift, he did. And the resulting H4 was finished in 1759. It weighed only three pounds and it measured five inches across. So too big and heavy to really be carried in a pocket, but it looked a lot like a pocket watch. It definitely was much, much smaller and nimbler than the other versions he had made. This did come with some trade-offs, though. Uh, Unlike the earlier Models, it did require lubrication, and it needed to be wound every day and required some regular maintenance and cleaning to keep it running. But it's portable, and you also read it just like you'd read a regular clock. And, uh, as was proved on a voyage, it was more accurate than required for the 20,000-pound grand prize. However, he did not immediately reap in lots of prize money because there was drama. The H-4 went on a test voyage to Jamaica, which, as we referenced before the break, it passed with flying colors. But the trial was thrown out on a technicality. Harrison was supposed to use the eclipses of Jupiter's moons to to confirm the longitude in Jamaica, and he didn't do that. He didn't know that he was supposed to do it. He wound up getting it like a smaller sort of consolation prize. Hmm. That would make me harumph. 
Uh, meanwhile, two other, two astronomers, Neville Maskelyne and James Bradley, the latter being the astronomer royal on the longitude board, had been in pursuit of the prize through lunar methods, as we talked about earlier. Unlike Harrison, they both had formal standing and a presence in the academic community. They and others advocated strongly for a lunar solution to the longitude problem, not a mechanical one. When Bradley died, his replacement, Nathaniel Bliss, was similarly tied to the lunar idea. This was one of those weird things where the fact that they both had formal educations made people believe them more than they believed someone who was self-taught. But then also, a lot of people seem to have this really weird idea that the harder method would be better somehow than one that was easy. Uh, sometimes I do that in life, so I can't judge them too harshly. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> Neville Maskelyne became Harrison's nemesis. He became the official observer for Harrison's do-over of his trial of the H-4, even though Maskelyne had a vested interest in his own work winning the prize. Uh, in spite of Maskelyne's involvement, the H-4 did pass its second test again, once again with flying colors. After a long delay, the Board of Longitude granted Harrison half the prize, promising the remainder if he handed over all of his prior work and built two more models of the H-4. But as time passed, George III started adding more requirements to the Longitude Act, which at this point was more than 50 years old. And some of these uh, requirements specifically referred to Harrison and his work. Harrison's relationship with the board became progressively more and more adversarial, the board kept demanding that he dismantle and reassemble the H-4 in the presence of observers, which had never been part of the requirements and which, you know, Harrison was logically afraid that someone was, was going to steal his idea. Maskelyne, who was still acting as Harrison's taskmaster, also at the same time started publishing his own astronomical charts for people to use instead of this clock idea. All of this craziness dragged on and on. And even though the H-4 had been proven to work as it was supposed to, Maskelyne collected it, along with all of Harrison's other timepieces, to subject it to 10 months more of tests, and which he insisted on conducting himself. And these tests went on from May of 1766 to March of 1767. And not only did the H-4 fail, but it also never worked properly after this. It's possible Maskelyne had something to do with that fact. Yeah, it's, uh, he also, it's a short walk to get there. <laughs> yeah. He also handled all the other clocks really roughly uh, in transporting them. Like, one of them was dropped while loading it onto the cart that was going to take them to London. And the cart that took them to London was just inordinately bad and very rattly and shaky. It, he just did not take care with the whole thing. So finally, after a great deal of angry back and forth, Harrison did actually make two more H-4s. Watchmaker Larkham Kendall made a reproduction as well, which he called K-1, and which took him more than two years to complete. K-1 went on Captain James Cook's second voyage. He had previously spoken very highly of the lunar method. Meanwhile, Harrison moved on to making yet another watch, which was the H-5. As this was happening, his son William wrote to King George III this letter detailing all of his father's work and how difficult things had been with the Longitude Board. Um, as later reported by William Harrison's son, John, so the John Harrison clockmaker's grandson, King George said, 
These people have been cruelly treated. By God, Harrison, I will see you righted. King George went to the Prime Minister at this point, and the Prime Minister then went to the board. And finally, in April of 1773, Harrison was granted 8,750 pounds, which was most of the difference between the 10,000 he had been given earlier and the 20,000 that he had earned by completing this task. But it specifically was not the grand prize. Although the Board of Longitude was in existence for 114 years, and it ultimately spent 101,000 pounds in an attempt to crack the longitude problem, it never awarded the 20,000 pound prize to anyone. One of the arguments that was made against Harrison getting it was that the H-4 was too expensive and time-consuming to mass-produce. I mean, it had taken this other watchmaker, Larkham Kendall, two years to make uh, one reproduction of it. Um, None of this had been part of the original stipulations, though. Yeah, it does seem a little harassing at that point. Yeah, It really starts to feel like the board was just like, we don't want to part with that money. Yeah. Uh, however, Captain Cook was absolutely glowing about the K-1 when he returned from his journey. He said that it, quote, exceeded the expectations of its most zealous advocate and called it our faithful guide through all vicissitudes and climates. Yeah, he pretty much would converted from his previous uh, feeling, which was that the astronomical charts that had been provided to him on his first voyage had worked perfectly well. Uh, at the end of this whole saga, John Harrison died on March 24th of 1776, only a couple of years uh, after being awarded this additional 8,750 pounds. Larkham Kendall's attempts to mass-produce Harrison's designs were uh, really not at the quality that Harrison had managed. They were inferior. But one of them, known as the K-2, was stolen from Captain Bly during the mutiny on the Bounty. Other watchmakers kept trying to figure out how to mass-produce and build on this original idea. And finally, watchmakers John Arnold and Thomas Earnshaw each managed to figure out ways to mass-produce them, although the quality of what was put out really varied a whole lot. By the 1780s, though, using a chronometer to take a longitude reading became a common part of ship's logs. Many ships had more than one for the sake of both redundancy and accuracy. They would take the same reading with lots of different clocks to try to make sure that they had the most accurate one. The HMS Beagle reportedly had 22 of them when Charles Darwin began his voyages. And most of Harrison's clocks are now in London's National Maritime Museum, as well as other museums throughout the world. As kind of a side note, there was a lot of talk as all of this was going on about uh, what a great loss of life would be prevented if the longitude problem were solved. Uh, I read a really interest- interesting paper while doing the research for this, about how scurvy was actually killing way more sailors than shipwrecks did. And scurvy was killing more sailors even than combat was. And the authors were like, if they actually really cared about the loss of life, there would have been a scurvy board to take care of that problem, (laughs) Uh, which Captain Cook wound up doing by his own efforts for his own crew uh, without someone forcing him to do it. So I found that to be kind of an interesting aside. So now, do you have some listener mail for us to enjoy? Yes, I do. This is from Kess, who writes about our episode on the Battle of Blair Mountain. 
Kess says, in the episode, you mention my hometown of Fort Thomas, Kentucky, where my family has lived for four generations. Although my family loves history, I somehow missed that the soldiers from the fort once participated in a national conflict. I've been to the fort many times because in addition to still serving as an Army Reserve base, it's also a local park. As kids, my brother and I spent many hours at the fort exploring the woods, playing tennis, and climbing the jungle gyms. We used to mountain bike on the same roads that the Army Jeeps used for training exercises. My grandmother, who married into the Fort Thomas side of our family, was the daughter of a coal miner. Grandma Eleanor never let us forget our roots in the coal industry and made sure that my brother and I grew up knowing the differences between bituminous and anthracite coal. Most coal in the United States, such as the coal mined at Blair Mountain, is bituminous coal, which has a lower carbon content than the anthracite coal and burns less efficiently. Grandma L. grew up in the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, where her father was a member of the United Mine Workers Union. My great-grandpa was called Snowball, and he was the child of Russian and Polish immigrants who came through Ellis Island. Snowball started working at the mines when he was 13, having just finished third grade. When he was 15, Snowball was promoted to shovel operator, and during his nearly five decades in the coal industry, Snowball learned to operate the steam, diesel, and electrical shovels. Shovel operation was considered a pretty good job at the time because it came with less health risks than most mining careers. Snowball's work with the shovels took place on the surface of the mine, so he did not have to regularly enter shafts and was not exposed to the same amounts of carbon dust as other miners. Snowball outlived many of his mining colleagues, but was able to meet some of his great-grandchildren, including me, before he passed away at the age of 93. Recently, my dad took me on a pilgrimage to the coal region to see family and friends. We visited several mining towns, including Centralia, where a coal fire has been burning underground since 1962, Shendo, where the great anthracite coal strike took place in 1902, and William Penn, a former company town where my great-grandfather served as chief of the volunteer fire department. A picture of my great-grandfather still hangs on the wall at the firehouse. I will never forget my expedition to the coal region, Because while I always knew that coal was important to my family, I never really appreciated how extensively coal contributed to the formation of the modern United States. My grandfather from Fort Thomas and my grandmother from the coal region met in Washington, D.C. when they both joined the Navy to improve their prospects. I wonder if they ever spoke about the connection between the Fort Thomas and the coal industry, or if they ever realized how the Battle of Blair Mountain mutually affected their lives. While my grandmother is no longer with us, Grandpa is still active and loves history. I will definitely play your podcast for him the next time I'm home. Thanks for helping us make a new memory and for the great work that you do. Kess, I wanted to read this for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that I love when we have family stories that are tied to the podcast. The other is that Kess included how to pronounce the town of Shendo, which is specifically spelled like Shenandoah, which is pronounced Shenandoah when used for other parts of the world in other places. And pretty much any example of when something has a pronunciation that's pretty established as being different from how local people say it is a time that I need someone to spell that out for me because I would have said it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I totally would have gone with Shenandoah. Yeah, because there is there are definitely 100 percent other places pronounced that way. So (laughs) thank you, Cass, for writing and for telling me how to say Shenandoah. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. 
If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word longitude into the search bar. You will find an article called How to Use the Stars to Find Your Way. Uh, if you would like to come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, you'll find our show notes, you'll find all of the episodes, and we will be putting in some links that tell you in more detail how to figure out where you are using things like clocks and stars and moons and suns and things, because that would have been very convoluted to explain in the episode. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.